0: Welcome to the Development Podcast, a podcast jam-packed with fantastic advice on professional development from interviews with renowned authors, speakers, industry professionals, and influencers. I'm your host, Marty Manosalvis. Thanks again for tuning in. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening in. Uh, Today, I'm honored to have best-selling author, speaker, and trusted advisor, Greg Sattel, here to discuss what innovation really looks like and how to transform big ideas into practical business solutions. As an accomplished entrepreneur, executive, and one of the foremost experts in innovation today, Greg speaks to audiences around the world and works with leading organizations to better compete in today's destructive marketplace. Uh, He is consistently ranked by Innovation Excellence in the top five of its global list of the top 40 innovation bloggers, and by International Data Group as one of the 10 digital transformational influencers uh, to follow today. Uh, Greg is well known for his TEDx talk, Why Do Some Movements Succeed While Others Fail, and is a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and Inc. Magazine. In addition to that, Greg has published bestsellers, Cascades: How to Create Movement and Drive Transformational Change, and Mapping Innovation, which has been selected as one of the best business books back in 2017. So, Greg, thank you again so much for joining. I'm excited to hear your thoughts. Uh, how are you doing?
1: Thanks for having me, Martin.
0: So, can you start us off by just sharing a bit about you know what sparked your interest about learning more of innovation and and your experience applying it?
1: Well. Uh- I spent most of my adult life managing organizations, uh, and when you're managing an organization, there's always an incredible pressure to innovate but when whenever you look for how people uh, innovate successfully, they all seem to to do it a different way so uh, y- you know if you look at design thinkers for 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 example, you know you see that Steve Jobs, you know, swore by it. That that uh, uh, that e- uh, Ideo has built a, a wonderful design practice based on it. You, you know, Stanford has built an entire school around it. And then you go and you see uh, how it actually works, and then you say, "Okay, well, you, you know, you f- focus on on the needs of your end users, and then you you uh, rapidly prototype and." iterate towards a, a radically better solution and it sounds like a great idea and you say okay that must be how 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 you do it and then you know you read clayton christensen and the innovator's dilemma and disruptive innovation and he says well that's how you know good firms go out of business they pay too much attention to their uh, to their end users and 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 then they uh, don't notice when the uh, when uh, the, the the means of of competition shift be- beneath their feet, and that's how you get that's how good businesses get into a lot of trouble. So you say, okay, those those two things can't be true at the same time, and then you have other things like open innovation and lean startup, and on and on and on. Uh, lots of good ideas, all uh, all good uh, case studies where they've been successful. But look at any one of them, and you can find somebody else who's done things exactly the opposite and been just as successful or or, or more. So that seemed to me to be an interesting problem, and I wanted to to figure it out.
0: That's awesome. Thank you for sharing. So to, at a technology summit interview, uh, you said. So, I think we fall into the trap of thinking that innovation is all about ideas and that we have to come up with it, but it's not. The truth is, nobody cares about your ideas. They care about what problems you can solve for them. So if you want to innovate, you don't need to look for any great, fantastic ideas, but rather, you just need to go out and find a good, meaningful problem. I'm wondering if you can expand more on that and, and share you know what innovation really means to you. Well for me,
1: I take a pretty broad view of innovation, so there's all these crazy definitions about innovation and whether mm-hmm. it's an innovation or an invention or which I don't put a lot of stake in, and I think is is largely a waste of time. Right. But for me, and an innovation is just a novel solution to an important problem. Um, and there's, you know, and within that, the the context is is really important. So if you're and uh, if you're an engineer at a you know at a at a big company, your innovation job might be to invent a product. But if you're a scientist in a lab, your innovation might be a new approach to a natural phenomenon. Um, either way, you know those are are novel solutions to important problems, uh, or at least problems that are seen to be important in a particular domain or field. So that that's really all I was trying to say when people talk about innovation they they you know it's fun to, to talk a whole lot about ideas and look everybody has ideas um, but most people don't want to hear about your ideas cuz they they're too interested in their own ideas and they, they, that they want to tell you about probably but if you find a meaningful problem, a problem that somebody wants solved, uh, that's something people tend to care about. And if, and there's a lot of opportunity in solving that problem.
0: It's really good. And I really like that novel solution to, to an important problem uh, and what that entails. Uh, in the process of writing your book, uh, Mapping Innovation, you studied every great innovator you could find from massive global corporations to just world-class lab startups and every shape and size that you can think of. Uh, you found them and you, you studied them and you found one thing in common. and That was that they're constantly you know, seeking out those new problems to solve. Uh, the great innovators you found have a systematic and displayed process to just be able to find those new problems. Um, so I, I love that, and I really agree with that. Um, can you expand more on you know how to look for those sort of problems because uh, I think that plays a major role in innovation? Well, I
1: think you know everybody's got their own way of doing it. I think the the important part, the important part is to constantly be exploring and investing in exploration. I mean, it's a pretty straightforward equation. If you don't explore, you, you won't discover. If you don't discover, you won't invent. If you don't invent, you will be disrupted at some mm. point. It, it really is just a matter of time. And uh, we can see plenty of examples of that. Uh, General Electric is, is a, a good recent example of where they really stopped uh, in uh, innovating. They really stopped inventing in the 1970s i mean that was really the first last time they really invented something was the ct scanner in in some somewhere in the mid 70s um the the type of organization you are uh really is going to determine what what that exploration means so if you were like a Big, huge multinational that might be setting up some huge lab somewhere with lots of PhDs and a lot of investment. Um, if you're a local company, uh, you know, that might be just, uh, you know, invite, you know, having some relationship with a local university. Um, there are lots of uh, institutes where if you take for instance, the Manufacturing USA institutes where, you know, they're dreaming up the cutting edge of, of things like uh, uh, additive manufacturing or cybersecurity or uh, 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 composite materials. Um, you, can, you can join that as, as, as an associate member from, sure. you know, anywhere from zero to $15,000 a year which even for a relatively small company and when i've been for instance i was invited to the uh to uh, uh, one of the biannual meetings of the composite institute and i saw you know huge multinational corporations there like uh, who are interested in composite materials like boeing and airbus and ford and other car companies but also lots of little small companies uh, that you've never really heard of that were uh, there to not only interact with those companies, but also hearing, hear about the cutting edge research coming out of universities like Purdue and mm-hmm. University of Tennessee at Knoxville and uh, Oak Ridge National Laboratory that are all part of that same uh, institute. So, and and that's something that, you know, Uh, that's sort of on the level that, that almost any company could, uh, uh, could get uh, access to that. But you're talking about, you know, a really world world world-class cutting edge information about a, a, you know, an an emerging field.
0: I think that's really good. And I think you have a good point with really just depending on the type of uh, company or industry that you're in and, and, and that'll vary. So they say people don't know uh, what they want until you show it to them. And Henry Ford has a great quote on this. If I'd asked customers what they wanted, they would have told me a faster horse. It's about figuring out what others want before they even know what they want. And I think that can be uh, sort of tough at times. So I'm wondering, how do we go about that?
1: Yeah, I think, again, go, go back to, you know, what's a problem that, that they want solved. So, for instance, when Steve Jobs, when he was thinking about the iPod, it wasn't you know a music player with a distinct set of pe- features. He said, you know, I, I want I want a thousand songs in my pocket. That's what I want. You know, that's that's the problem I need solved.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, you know, when when you look at what the what problems the car solved. Um, It wasn't really getting from place to place because, I mean, people didn't move from place to place. I mean, back when in in the early 20th century, people lived their lives pretty much within 10 miles. I mean, most people didn't, didn't go beyond 10 miles away from where they were born their entire lives. So this whole idea of, wow, you could go to another town didn't really mean much to most people. Um, the problems it solved were really much more having to do with distributing goods. So uh, again, um, once the, the the car was able to solve those problems, that's when car ownership took off. Also, uh, Henry Ford. Um, you know, he didn't invent the car. He 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 invented the mass production of cars. But I think what's crucial to understand about the the automobile or any major uh, innovation is they usually take decades to, to take hold. Um when uh when Henry Ford came around, by the time he came around, cars had been around for almost 20 years. And when he started for Ford Motor Company, you know, cars wouldn't really hit their scale until another 15 years. I mean, cars and electricity as well didn't really begin to have an impact until almost 40 years after they were invented. So, again, it's, it's really, really important um, to, to figure out what problem people need solved. And in the case of Henry Ford, it wasn't really a car. It was a cheaper car.
0: It's really good. So figuring out what problem that people need to be solved. In um, to expand on that, um, you know, it, it may take a long time to do. That. And like you said, a lot of these companies, it took it takes years. Um, and so one, you know, one of those reasons may even be failure. And failure, uh, after all, is a hard evidence that you've tried something difficult, uh, and the p- price uh, that you know you paid the price. Yet failure, as anyone who has actually experienced it uh, knows well, it's a horrible, painful feeling. So I'm wondering, how should we effectively approach failure in light of this?
1: Well, I think you should avoid it if you can, right? I I mean, Mm. I was sort of talking a little tongue in cheek there. I think we've come to almost glorify failure that, oh, look, we failed. Wow, we, we were really ambitious and we failed and we didn't get anything done. So, you know we must have done something really, really good because, uh, we were adventurous enough to fail. I think if you look at any sensible approach to failure, you want to shrink your failures down small enough so that they're not going to kill you. Uh, if you look at Steve blank and the lean startup and the whole idea is based on really, uh, breaking those hypotheses down so they're small enough and cheap enough in the form of a minimal viable product, that you can go out and test them cheaply, and you can prove or disprove those hypotheses without bringing down the whole enterprise, Um, so that you don't have to fail completely. You can just have these uh, little failures, manageable failures along the way that you can learn from and, and eventually succeed.
0: And I think that it even has just a, a less you know, negative impact on your company when you can do that, when you can you know, do that sort of failure and but not put so much attention to it and so much um, investments in it, uh, but rather go out and try. In a recent article, uh, you mentioned that the truth is that the next big thing always starts out looking like nothing at all. Einstein never thought that his work would have a practical impact during his lifetime. So I'm wondering, how do you keep that drive and motivation even when you don't see much process or growth?
1: Yeah, and I, and I think he, there I was talking specifically about quantum computing back in 1993. Um, and A guy named Charlie Bennett invented something uh, called uh, quantum teleportation. Um, in In both the case of Einstein and Charlie Bennett, they were solving problems that were extremely important to their field, especially in Einstein's case, where it was almost immediately uh, seen as a uh, revelation, revelation. I'm getting the relativity and revelation mixed up. Um I mean here was this guy who couldn't get a professorship he was had to take mm-hmm. a job as a clerk at a patent office and in 2000 uh, in uh, in 1905 he, he just he let loose a a series of four papers that immediately set the entire physics world on its ear so these were immediately uh recognized as important solutions to problems that people had been uh, thinking about for quite some time. Uh, so, I th- again, it comes down to, you know, a problem that, that people really want solved. In some cases, as in the case of Einstein, these were kind of very obscure problems that physicists were, were thinking about. That didn't have uh, much immediate relevance to uh, the, to pract- the practical problems of the age, but you know today, if you know, try and find you know any modern um, technology that doesn't rely on on relativity or or. Uh, or uh, quantum mechanics. I mean, uh, basically, every electronic, mm-hmm. anything that uses a transistor is heavily reliant on on quantum mechanics. And even something as simple as a GPS device, uh, The GPS satellites are are far enough away, and they move fast enough that they need to be calibrated according to Einstein's equations. So, Essentially, whenever you use your GPS to get from one place to another, you are, in in some sense, uh, proving Einstein's theory of special relativity. Because if it wasn't true, uh, the satellites would be calibrated calibrated differently, and you would be uh, you'd be a long way from where you wanted to go.
0: Mm. And I think it's incredible that that their work is still being used tremendously in a lot that we do
1: so well uh, i mean newton's work is still being mm-hmm. used tremendously in a lot than we do and he's he's a you know a lot uh he came way before einstein
0: so how do you create movement that drives transformational change and what are some things that great innovators do differently
1: well th- what what i found that great innovators do differently uh and we've mentioned a couple of times already Mm -hmm. is they're always looking for new problems. Uh, I think we, we, we spend too much time worrying about, you know, this approach to problem solving versus that approach to solve problem solving. In my research, I haven't found really any, any consistency in one method of problem, problem solving over another. Uh, It seems to be Almost as simple as some people like to solve problems a certain way, and other people like to, you know, uh, solve problems a different way. Um, And again, if you, you know, see somebody who's really successful with one method, you can always find somebody who's just as successful doing it a different way. But one thing that was consistent, you know, uh, among great innovators, not somebody who just invented something once or a company that came up with a one hit wonder, but the ones that are consistent can do it consistently over decades uh, is this uh, constantly searching out new problems to solve and really having a passion for solving problems rather than a passion for having an idea. Anybody can be passionate about whatever brain fart just bubbled up in their head. But really, being passionate and and persistent about getting a an important and meaningful problem solved, that is 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 really something very different and valuable. Cool. Um, in terms of creating a movement, uh, this is based on my my second book about uh, uh, cascades, and uh, it's it, it's a bit more of a complex topic. But I can tell you what what the what the biggest mistake I see in people trying to get traction for an idea is that for some reason um, when someone's passionate about an idea, they seem to want to go over go and win over skeptics, which is almost always the the wrong uh, thing to do what which the first step towards starting a movement that can, really drive a transfer transformation or get an idea traction and and help it scale is you need to find people who are enthusiastic about and the the idea already Uh, and once you find those people who are enthusiastic about the idea you have to figure out how you can empower them to succeed and to bring others in who can bring others in still and that's really what you want to focus on in the beginning there's a lot more that comes into it later, uh, issues with identifying shared values, um, uh, making uh, g- giving a sense of ownership and co optable resources, uh, which i uh, i uh, I talk about at length in my book. But in a nutshell, that that's that's uh, that, that's sort that's it sort of shrunk down to its simplest form is, Go out and find people who are already enthusiastic about what you want to achieve and, uh, and, and, and empower them to take ownership of it and, and to bring others in.
0: Right. I love that. You know, the importance of having that passion to want to look for those problems. So in a recent blog. Uh, You stated, we often overlook the value of simple questions uh, because we think intelligence has something to do with the ability to recite facts. Yet, intelligence is not not about knowing all the answers, but it's about asking the right questions. That's how we expand knowledge and gain a deeper understanding. In fact, the most profound answers often come from seemingly silly questions. And that answers are easy. They resolve matters. Questions are harder. They point out gaps in our knowledge and understanding, and that can make us uncomfortable. I love that because I think there's, there's a lot of truth in that it, it can easily make us uncomfortable. And so, uh, sometimes I feel as if, you know, we shouldn't ask a question just because of how it may make us feel or how it may make us look. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering how do we avoid letting our thoughts get in the way of us asking questions and, and specifically those sort of silly questions.
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, yeah, and and that that post was about this young girl Gracie Cunningham, who asked, "What do we need math for anyway?" I mean, you know, where did it come from? Why did people two thousand years ago need to understand algebra? Uh, and and she got pilloried for it on, on social media, but then a lot of uh, really really smart people you know very very high quality scientists and mathematicians said hey wait that's not stupid at all that those are actually some really good fundamental questions Mm -hmm. and uh and i think this is especially becoming important today and if you look at uh you know if you look at some of the really really huge innovations I guess I'm on an Einstein kick this morning, so we'll go back to Einstein. You know, his idea of, um, his question of what would it be like to ride on a bolt of lightning? You know, th- that's what led to special relativity. It ended up being a, a really interesting and important question he had as a kid. You know, if if the speed of light is constant and I'm riding on a speed of light holding a flashlight, well, then what happens because uh, the flashlight the light from the flashlight can't be going any faster than i am but we know if i'm on a train and the train is going 30 miles an hour and i spent and i throw a baseball 10 miles an hour that that baseball will be going 40 miles an hour so he says how does that work and 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 it took him 10 years to f- figure out that problem um So I I think we really need to value questions like that. And I think that's always been true, but especially in the age of the internet, because, you know, uh, a typical teenager with a smartphone has more access to information today uh, than, you know, a researcher working at a big institution when, you know, back when I was growing up. Uh, similarly for working with numbers. When I grew up, somebody was, who who was considered to be smart, was able to retain a lot of information and had a good facility with numbers. Now, um, you know, it's sort of like sense of direction. Those are, those are in large part, outdated skills. You know, you don't really need to retain much information when you have, you know, a Google search at your fingertips. You know, you don't have to have much facility with numbers if you can use an Excel spreadsheet or a calculator. Um, there's not, there's just not a lot of utility in that. But if you can ask good questions and point the way to, to uh, knowledge that we don't have that could be useful to solve a problem, now that's a really good and important skill.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think you're right on that now we have more Access to information than we ever had before, you know. So if we aren't asking those sort of silly questions, we're we're missing out on so much potential.
1: Yeah, I can't emphasize enough. I mean, when I was growing up, we used to rem we used to memorize people's phone numbers. I mean, <laughs> why? You know, I mean that took a uh, that took a lot of cognitive energy to walk around with people's numbers <laughs> in your head, or to write down directions. I mean, we spent a lot of stuff doing. You know stuff that you just don't have to do now
0: Mm -hmm. right so it's so important to to you know find that sort of value in asking those questions so i love that so as we wrap up um one of the questions that i've I've been focusing on a lot in in this podcast has just been you know how this applies to to leadership and the role that it plays and so i'm wondering can you describe the role innovation plays in leadership
1: well i think that every leader needs to empower, uh, others, uh, because your ability to create value is, is is only as much as your ability to solve problems for others. Mm -hmm. So in, in terms of, of leadership, you know, you have to ask yourself, how am I empowering people to, to solve problems? Uh, Part of that is the way you manage every day with uh, giving people um, a a sense of autonomy, Um, but also how are you uh, giving them a sense of mastery and purpose? So how are you increasing their skill level so that they're able to solve more complex problems, uh, able to communicate with others, To uh, collaborate and solve even bigger and more complex problems, and how are you giving them a sense of purpose so that they feel that the problems that they solve matters? And I think we can all, uh, you know, if we take it to a very very basic level, where you know, let's say at a mini mart or a grocery store, we we've all dealt with retail clerks who thought our problems were important to solve and all, and we've all shopped at places where retail clerks didn't think those problems Mm -hmm. were important to solve. Uh, If, if, if you look at the, the sort of uh, the gold standard, be something like an Apple store where you walk in and immediately you have somebody whose complete job is to, Solve a problem, whether they sell something to you or not. Um, so you want to ask, uh, as as a leader, how am I empowering people to solve those problems? How am I giving them the autonomy so that they're not so boxed in that they don't have any freedom uh, to solve somebody's problem because it doesn't fit into their minor, you know, the, their 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 uh, small. Uh, job classification? Mm-hmm. How am I giving them the opportunities to improve their mastery so that they have the ability to solve problems? And how am I giving them uh, a sense of shared purpose with the enterprise so that they, be- they believe and they feel that solving uh, problems is uh, not only that, that something that they can be doing, but is really something important that they should be doing
0: right in the, you know, it's, it's important to be empowering others. And that has a direct uh, impact has a direct um, impact on how they go about that, how they ask questions and, and ultimately y- your impact on them is going to have uh, a, a huge uh, results and, and so much potential around that. So it's really good. Are there any final thoughts around innovation that you'd like to share before we conclude? I think we've covered
1: it uh, uh, pretty well. Mm-hmm. It, just one thing that that I would caution um, is that uh, in, in my first book, I talked about uh, innovation as being a process of discovery, engineering, and transformation. Uh, the part that people most often underestimate is that transformation they figure most people think well if you make a discovery and then you're actually able to invent something uh that solves a particular problem that immediately people will see value in that idea um we're always worried about people trying to steal our ideas um the fact is most people uh, not only do not want to steal your 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 ideas they don't even want to pay attention to your ideas so that third uh that third leg the transformation how you get an idea accepted adopted and scaled is often the most difficult and longest part of innovation
0: right i think that's it's an interesting point but it but it's true you know people won't always pay attention to your ideas and and uh to a certain extent you know that's all right you'll you have to be able to learn uh, new and new ways to be able to share that and um, but not necessarily just put all the focus on them. so that's a it's a really good point that you bring up. Well, Greg, thank you again. Uh, so much for your time, your thoughts around innovation have been extremely helpful and and the sharing the importance of just asking questions, you know that really goes a long way. so so thank you for that and and hope all the best for you. Uh, Th- listeners, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, If you have any questions, feel free to to contact us. And if you'd like to learn more about Greg's work, uh, his articles, and and his books, please visit uh, uh, gregsatel.com. But with that, thank you everyone for listening and have a great day.